Father, we worship you. We call you King Jesus. All hail King Jesus. God, we praise your holy name. Church, we just whisper his praise, say his praise, say it out loud. Let's just praise him together. Lord Jesus, we praise you. Lord Jesus, we glorify you. Church, shift your mind from what isn't happening in your life <laughs> or the disappointments that are happening in your life. And let's just proclaim something we're grateful for. Come on, right now. Just thank him. Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful for spouses. We're grateful for kids. We're grateful for family. We're grateful for church. Lord, we're grateful for your person and your presence. And Lord Jesus, we ask you here into this room, into this moment, into this place, that you would encounter us, that you would change us, that you would shape us, that you would form us, that you would make us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Can we give Jesus a hand? Thank you, guys. I love the good squeak of a chair in a middle school auditorium. Squeak, squeak. We're not big fans of taking ourselves very seriously, so we do things like bring our kids in here with palm branches. We're really big fans of taking Jesus seriously, though. And we're helping even our little ones learn how to um, embrace and walk with him in, in deep, significant relationship. So um, if you've never seen that before and you're like, oh my goodness, what just happened? There were kids with palm branches. We're just praising Jesus. We're just praising Jesus. So um, let's see here. Uh, I have two things and then I'm headed towards John 5 um, on this Palm Sunday. If you want to go ahead and turn there or scroll there or however you're getting there. Um, let's see. We have a picnic after church. Uh, we are providing food. So it's right at, at um, what was Humacray Park. It's now Longleaf Park right across the street. Lake, um, and then you, I think hang a left as you go in there. But it's all food provided. If you're new here, if you don't feel vitally connected, um, we would love to have you join us over there. It's going to be a pretty casual time of just getting to know one another. Sound good? Okay. Uh, next thing, come on, we got a clap out of that. All right. Yeah, okay, I heard somebody. All right, next thing, um, we are, are asking you all, um, as, our, as our congregation, as the people that we're in this Jesus journey with, um, to join us in six weeks of small groups. Like, you can, you can even, you know, maintain your New Year's resolutions for about six weeks, right? Come on. Okay, so we're asking that you would join us in six weeks of small groups, and the point is just to get in a living room setting with some other believers and talk about the passage, the text, and, and some of what we're walking through as a group on Sunday mornings. Sound good? So we're going to be telling you about that. There's going to be two trainings um, and for leaders or, or those who want to have a host in their homes, and then we're going to actually launch it in the middle of May. So everybody say six weeks. Easy. You can do this. Six weeks. Now, some of you are going, well, I don't want to lead it, but I could have it in my home. Great. Right out that door or those doors, you can go see Cynthia. She's going to be sitting at that table and you can say, hey, I can host it in our home. Uh, you might go, I can't host it in our home. My kids are bonkers and the house is a mess, but I can lead one. Great. Go see Cynthia. Uh, you might go, I do not want to lead one. I do not want to host one, but I might just want to get in one unless the people are weird. 
If that's you, then go see Cynthia too. So get signed up. We are convinced that this messy Jesus journey happens best in the context of real and authentic, vibrant relationships. Yeah? So here's the thing. You've got to take a risk to take the next step. Some of you took a risk today and you got out of your chair and you waved a little palm branch. Way to go. Jesus meets us when we take risks. Amen? Okay. All right, we're in uh, John 5. Um, I'm not going to, we decided not to, to um, deviate just because it was Palm Sunday. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday as far as I'm concerned. Um, we are going to celebrate Easter though next week. And what I mean by that is all of this is about the resurrection of Christ Jesus. So everything should be geared that way. Um, and someone, while I'm sitting here, can we turn the lights in the house up a little bit so people can read their Bibles? Someone, I don't know who I'm talking to. There we go, Rick's got it, come on. Okay, I know how to do it, but I'd have to leave to go do it. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, let's see here. We are in John 5. I'm going to do something different. I don't ever do this. Um, and if you know anything about us, you should expect the unexpected, right? Okay, so I'm in John 5. I'm going to start in verse 31, and I'm going to end in verse 47. Thank you, Rick. I think that was Rick. We're grateful. Um, and I'm going to try to read this without making one comment, okay? That's going to be a miracle if that happens. Uh, we'll see if I can do it. And here's what else I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you stand with me for the reading of God's word today. John 5, starting in verse 31. Squeak, squeak, squeak. Welcome to the middle school. <laughs> Maybe instead of clapping, we'll just move the chairs back and forth once in a while. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you that you're here with us. All right, John 5, starting in verse 31, going through verse 47. I'm reading in the NIV. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent." You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from God? Father, do not think I will, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come and enlighten our hearts, our minds, our lives? Would you invigorate us 
with your spirit, your presence, your wisdom, your revelation. Would you shape us and form us? In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can sit. And everybody said, squeak. <laughs> the crux of this passage, it was a lot, um, and we're gonna, I'm going to attempt to move through it. Um, but we're going to talk about uh, the very first thing Jesus is pointing out, um, this idea that, that something is bearing testimony or witness to him. Um, then we're going to talk about what is Jesus wanting to establish, even looking at this passage. What is he wanting to establish in us? Um, then we're going to look at the rebuke Jesus gives to the religious folks, because that's who he's talking about here, the church people. Yes. Uh, like me, that's right, um, the rebuke that Jesus gives. And then we're going to tie it up with the fundamental failure. Like what is Jesus addressing that the, the religious people, the Pharisees and Sadducees um, are doing or not doing? And then we're going to kind of land with sort of our choice in light of it. Um, I want to uh, take a little bit of a risk though this morning, and I want to share something that uh, happened in our um, house and in our home, and in, in really, most importantly, in my heart this week, because I think it, um, it, it becomes the fulcrum for this. Because what Jesus says here in, in verse 39 is he says, you, you religious people, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And Jesus is beginning to um, diagnose and take a look at the difference between knowing him merely in your head and then it, or experientially knowing him relationally in your heart. Okay, make sense? So we're going to actually delve into that, dive into it, and try to understand what is he even saying because he's condemning a group of people who choose to only know him in their head, and then he's actually lifting up John the Baptist, who he, he likens to a lamp that burned and gave light in verse 35. So, and then he's, he's really lifting up John the Baptist, and in so doing, he's saying this is how we as Christians should walk with, with hearts that are um, burnt up with the love of Jesus, Okay. So that's kind of where we're, where we're heading. Um, so let me tell you what happened at our house this week. And this is, um, it's a little bit dangerous because as our kids grow older, I have to be very careful. I have to stop telling stories about them because well-meaning congregants immediately leave. And what do you think they go say to one of our kids? Oh my goodness, I heard that. So you got to keep this in here, okay? This is our four-year-old and it has to stay in here. It's about me. Um, but I have to set it up with our four-year-old. So uh, our four-year-old Amelia, I actually got to hold her hand and I got to um, walk around with her during the, during the palm branches. But um, she has type one, you're gonna get me crying. She has type one diabetes. And what that means is um, on her little bottom, she has two sites. And one site is about, it's like two quarters, that's about how big it is. And it registers her blood glucose continually, night and day. Like I could bring it up on my phone, Abby has it on her phone right there. Um, and it alarms if she goes too high, and it alarms if she goes too low, okay? On the other side of her little bottom, she has uh, another um, two things that are about the size of a quarter, and that's a port in which um, she wears something about the size of a pager. Some of y'all don't even know what a pager is anymore. It's about the size of a half, a half a cell phone, okay? That's what it is. And we reload that with insulin every three or four days, and that insulin um, delivers through that port into her, into her bloodstream. So she can't eat anything without getting insulin, okay? 
So we were doing our thing on um, Friday. I try to take Fridays and Saturdays off, and we were um, we were doing some plantings, and we were just kind of going about our day. And um, Amelia was outside with me, and Ezra was outside, and we were, were digging holes. And um, she says, "Daddy, I'm going to go inside, and I'm going to change into my uh, into some play clothes so I can ride my big wheel and scooter." And I said, "Great." And uh, so she went inside, and um, I. I, I was just, you know, I don't know, I was being a dad. I just didn't even think about it. I was with Ezra and I was moving plants and she'd been gone a little while. And I poked my head in and she had gone inside and she'd gone to change and she had um, stood in, in front of the, uh, at the bathroom to try to go to the, to the bathroom. And her, um, as she pulled down her underwear, it got caught on these sites. And it happens every once in a while and it rips the sights out and uh, it causes her pain and we have to put it back in and whatever. And, um, and, and she ended up having an accident. And, you know, if, the, if like the mom and dad police, you know, who were around and they watched my response, I didn't do anything wrong, okay? I didn't, um, I wasn't angry, I wasn't impatient, I didn't raise my voice, I didn't, like there was not really anything externally that I did wrong, but I tend to, um, in any type of situation where things need to get done, I tend to go into what I would call like bulldozer mode. You know that? You know, I just kind of like drop it into bulldozer mode. It's kind of like the low gear and it just, and just pushes everything out of the way until whatever's dealt with is dealt with. Does, any, does anyone relate to that? A couple of you? Okay, thanks. Some of you don't go into bulldozer mode. Some of you go into freak out mode or some of you go into, you know, whatever. But whatever your thing is, that's tight. That's my thing. So we, you know, it got cleaned up. Okay, whatever. So the kids got in bed um, that night. And Abby and I always sit. It's a really special time. It's one of my favorite times during the day. But Abby and I will sit for about an hour and we, uh, we talk um, and just talk about our day. We talk about life and um, the journey of Jesus and our own failures and our own successes. And a lot of times she gives me great feedback. Sometimes I give her feedback and she says, and I didn't realize exactly what had happened, but she said, Michael, you know that Amelia had that accident because it got her underwear caught the sights and she couldn't get it down. And so she had this accident. And now you got to pause that for just a second. Cause I'm like, parked in John 5, and I'm reading all about religious people who elevate the brain and neglect the, come on, I'm reading all about religious people who elevate the, and neglect the, okay, and I'm sitting there, and I am like, you know, there was nothing that you could point out and say Michael did wrong, but it was like all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just and all of a sudden tears start just kind of forming and running down my cheeks. And I go, I'm, I am gripped by the reality that the most important thing that I can do as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, you name it. The most important thing, the very essence of everything that I am called and created to do is to help impress upon people the love of a holy God for them and invite them into deeper and more significant, ongoing, vibrant relationship with him. You follow me? That's it for me. Beginning, middle, end, that's it. I am called to um, shepherd both my kids, the body of Christ, whoever comes in, passes through our life. And I'm not trying to help clean them up. I'm not trying to make them look better. I'm not trying to make them dress cool or join a club. No, no, I'm trying to actually invite them into deeper, more significant, vibrant, progressively more intimate relationship with King Jesus. That's it. And I'm sitting there the other day and 
we're sitting in our living room, the kids are in bed, and Abby says this, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Paul. <laughs> and Abby, sa- Abby says to me what had happened, and it's like something in me absolutely just melts, and I go, oh, Father. It's not that I did something wrong. I missed an opportunity to take a moment with my little pumpkin and just go, just grieve with her. You know what I'm saying? Just love on her. Just go, sweetie, I'm so sorry that you were stuck in here by yourself and you couldn't get your, you know, your underwear down and then you had an accident and you had to go through all the shame of having an accident. Right? And and I didn't pause just to um, embrace her and to love on her and to tell her it's okay and to encourage her into the arms of King Jesus. Because here's the thing. If you're a parent, you're a transitional parent. Okay. In, in other words, um, I'm gonna, I'll be her dad forever, but there comes a, a um, critical juncture where I help her transition into knowing God as Heavenly Father. And my job until that transition point is to help impress upon her, however imperfectly it is, who he is in all of his love and compassion and grace and even firmness and discipline and all the stuff. My full job is to help love and impress this holy love of God onto her little heart so that when the time comes for her to fully transition into her relationship with him, that she is ready and has an accurate view and experience of who he is. What's funny is here in America, we tend to focus so much more on, on the sins, if you will, um, that we actually do. You know what I'm saying? But there's this whole nother thing, and those of us who are real thinkers probably fall into this at points, but there's this whole other thing where he has called and equipped and even um, given you what you need to handle situations differently in such a way that it invites the risen, finished work of King Jesus into that situation. You follow me? That's the, it's like, so, you know, when you, uh, most of us, when we get in situations, um, what rises up in us is what we actually think about God. What did he say? So I started with myself because I didn't have, I I couldn't go back to Amelia really and ask her forgiveness. She wouldn't understand. There was nothing to ask forgiveness for. But I started with myself, went, okay, Lord, there's probably something else deep in my heart where I don't fully grasp this love relationship. Would you help me drink deeply, more deeply of it at a deeper level? And then would you help me to continue to impress it upon um, those around me? Okay, so I'm inviting you as we walk into this, not to really park on my story, but what I'm inviting you to do is open your heart up sort of before King Jesus and to begin to allow him to show you the areas, not where you have egregious sin or addiction or you know, whatever, no, 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 but more to, to allow him to show you areas where there are missed opportunities. It's a whole different thing. So instead of you getting in an argument with your spouse or your roommate or your friend and bowing up to be right, all of a sudden it becomes about how do I respond in order to most accurately reflect the love of King Jesus? Oh, it's a game changer. And some of you are sitting there going, wait a second, you're setting the bar so impossibly high, I'm never going to reach it. Shake your head, yes. And guess what you do? You go, Lord Jesus, I'm never going to reach it. 
Would you forgive me? And would you come in and fill me again? And would you shape me and empower me? Does that make sense? Okay, let's keep going. We're going to come back to this little story of Amelia, but let's, let's attempt to walk through this and then we're going to, to bring it all the way around um, at the end. So uh, the first thing that I start looking at as I'm looking at this passage is I'm going, okay, what does Jesus want to establish um, here? And I think he clearly, in this whole passage last week and this week, what he is saying beyond a shadow of a doubt is, I am God. I am Yahweh, God incarnate. I am God in human skin. Incarnate's like a seminary word that just means God stepped out of heaven and he put on human skin and walked around. So it's the incarnation of Jesus. Um, So he's saying first, I am Yahweh, God. And then I think the other thing we have to look at is, is what does he want? Why is he even saying this? What does he want for the Israelite people? Um, and I think that's a double-sided answer. So the, the first thing is he wants to break the back of the religious system, which is weighing people down and breaking relationship between them and God. Okay, so he's going to break that religious system and and then he's going to empower them with freedom and life. Everybody breathe in. <sighs> freedom. Walking with Jesus should not be heavy. It's actually so impossible. It just calls us to surrender. And we go, Lord, it's all about you from beginning to end. Come help me, shape me, form me, make me. So what I love here, if we jump into um, Jesus is he actually answers. And let's look at verse 31 because he answers. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor and I know that his testimony about me is true. So testify in some translations that actually says witness. Does anybody have witness? One over there. Thank you. Way to go. Come on witness. Okay. Um, so what he's, what he's saying here, and I, I love this about Jesus because throughout the Mosaic law, and I could take you there, but it's, it's in Deuteronomy 17 and 19. If you want to look, it's in Corinthians 13, it's in uh, Matthew 18, but in all those passages, what you get is this rabbinic idea or Jewish idea or God ordained idea back in Deuteronomy that no one can be, um, convicted for good or ill on the testimony of themselves. You following me? So he's saying you can't um, convict somebody of sin or wrongdoing or punish them or whatever without the testimony of two or three witnesses. So what I love here is Jesus is so congruent. And by congruent, I mean who he is projecting to the people and who he is inside when no one's looking. He is so congruent that he actually starts with, hey, religious people, according to your own law, you cannot believe me except on the basis of two or three who testify that I'm king. You follow me? So then he jumps right in and he he lists out who is testifying that he is in fact king. And here's what he says. He says, number one, John the Baptist. That's in verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works up Go back to 33, 32, excuse me. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified the truth. So Jesus is saying, okay, religious people, I get that you don't believe that I'm God, but now step back from this, and under your own uh, covenants, under your own laws, look at this uh, rationally. There's three um, things or people that, that declare that I am, in fact, Yahweh God. Number one, John the Baptist. 
Number two, Yahweh God. It's all this verse 33, 34, 35, 36. I have a testimony weightier than that of John for the works that God the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that God the Father has sent me. So he's going, listen, I don't expect you to believe. Jesus is standing there. He is moving towards his death. He is standing there in front of all these religious people. He's saying, I don't expect you to believe what I am saying because I'm saying it, but I do expect you to believe because number one, John the Baptist said it. Number two, the signs and wonders that I am doing testify that Yahweh God is here and he has authenticated and ordained me. And then number three, all the scriptures from Genesis at that point to Malachi testify and point to me. You understand? So he's saying that literally uh, these, for these three reasons, you should know and believe that I am God. So he lays it out. I love that Jesus is that congruent, that he doesn't, um, he, he doesn't say, hey, do as I say, but not as I do. Oh man, that's another parenthood thing, isn't it? We, we should probably, um, anybody play basketball? Anybody? Couple people, okay. When you get a when you get a um, a pass in basketball, you know you can't move, and so you do these pivots. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, let me side pivot a second because I think this is important. Um, parents, leaders, whoever you are, um, friends, roommates, you are going to reproduce who you are, not what you say. You're going to reproduce who you are not what you say. And what I love about Jesus is when you look at his life, his, uh, the words of his mouth and his heart, what he is communicating, what's happening in all the situations, they, they align. So there's, there's exterior and internal sort of alignment and congruence. And he's actually attempting to reproduce who he is, not simply what he says. In other words, God is love. So what Jesus does is Love, And in this case, the greatest thing that he can do to love this group of religious people is tell them the absolute mind-bending truth and offer them life. Is Jesus loving this group of people? Yes, he's inviting them into the same freedom and life that he's offering everybody else. Okay, um, let's keep going. So number one, uh, this testimony or this witness are the three things that point to King Jesus, that he is in fact God, um, and he says it there so plainly and clearly. Okay, number two. So what does Jesus want to establish then um, in us? What does he want to establish in these religious folks? What does he want to establish in Israel? And then what does he want to establish in us today? So let's take a look at that. I'm going to say number one is... Um, the word of God or the person of Jesus to dwell in our hearts. That's verse 37. Let's take a look. And the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. There it is. You have never heard his voice nor see his form, nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe the one he sent. So what does God want there? Some of you are like, what? Okay, go again. Uh, nor, verse 38, nor does his word dwell in you. So remember, he's rebuking uh, the Pharisees and religious people who are standing there, and he's actually um, affirming John the Baptist or saying, hey, I totally align or I, I see the, the work of God in John the Baptist, but he is telling them uh, his, his word, so God's word, does not dwell in you. So what does he want? The word to dwell in us. 
So you got to flip that, right? What's Jesus after here? So number one, he wants the person of Jesus to dwell in our hearts. That's where you get this. Um, if I'm doing something wrong, tell me. Otherwise, I'm going to keep going. Um, that's where you get this uh, Christian or evangelical idea that you ask Jesus to come and dwell inside of you. Where does that come theologically? Right here. Word, dwell in your hearts. Okay. Second thing he wants comes out of verse 39 um, and 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So the second thing Jesus wants is he wants us to experience the life of Jesus in us and then through us. Let's say that together. He wants us to experience the life of Jesus in us and then through us. Through us. Okay, so um, what's fascinating, and, and this is such a powerful like little verse or two here, but is it possible then to study the Bible and miss relationship with Jesus? Whoa. That's a little heavy. Is it possible to study the Bible and miss relationship with Jesus? He's talking to a whole group of people who did it right here. And he's inviting them to find him. Okay, so the number, th- the number one thing he wants is the word of God to dwell in our hearts. The second thing he's after is that we'd experience the life of Jesus in us and then through us. The third thing is that the love of God would fill our hearts. Coming out of verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. What's he want? The love of God where? Go back to Michael and Amelia. Did Michael do anything wrong? No. But did I exemplify to my little four-year-old the tender, gracious, kind, forgiving love of God at the highest level that I could have? Go ahead and say it. No. It's very humbling. And it's also very freeing because all of a sudden you don't have to be perfect because I can just look at my father and go, Lord, I I missed it. Would you forgive me? Would you help me? Would you change me so that I can receive your love more powerfully? And then I can also give it more powerfully. Like the idea even of gathering together one another at church or in a a setting like this is that we would... um, access the person of Jesus more fully, uh, corporately together, but then also in all the little parts of our lives as we leave here that we would practice the presence of Jesus more fully. He's not interested in people who are perfect. You believe that? He's not. I'm telling you. He's interested in people whose hearts are turned towards him. In other words, I think the Lord would rather have not someone who does everything right, but rather have someone who goes, Lord, I missed a great opportunity with my little four-year-old. I'd rather not miss the next one. Will you help me? You follow me? You should hear all this as freedom, not condemnation. Okay? If you hear this as condemnation, um, it's probably an indicator that there's some old stuff from your past or childhood that needs to be scrubbed off, and that's great. It's just an opportunity to take that next step and understand who he is as this gracious, kind, loving father. Okay, so what does Jesus want to establish in us? Number one, the person of Jesus to dwell in us. Um, Number two, to experience the life of Jesus both in us and through us. Number three, that the love of God would fill our hearts. Number four, that we would seek the glory of God in him alone. I think that's in verse 44. Let's look at that quickly. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from God alone? So, 
Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders that they lack all four. And the essence of what he is beginning to communicate is, listen, guys, you have elevated the human mind and you have neglected the heart of relationship. In other words, if I took you to Ezekiel and I took you to Jeremiah, they actually say, I'll give you a new heart, not a new brain. Now, when the heart is made new, does our thinking shift? Yes, you got to get that. So I'm not neglecting the brain. And if you sit, if you come in here and you listen to me, I tend to be a little bit, um, uh, Meg would say academic. Um, and I go, what? I'm not, okay, maybe I'm academic, but here's the thing. The idea is that as God gives us a new heart, that we wouldn't be blind, silly Christians just walking around saying, whoa, 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 no, no, no. But we'd actually understand as we have new hearts that we would now understand and come to grasp the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of Christ and how it transforms us. That's the idea. So I, I think God intends us to be Christians that understand our Bible and understand a lot about who he is, but what he wants to change is our heart. Okay, let's keep going. So the rebuke of Jesus. So we've taken a look at the testimony or the witness of King Jesus. We've taken a look at what does Jesus want to establish um, in us as believers. Now let's look at the rebuke of Jesus. So he, he looks at these people and this whole passage is really a rebuke, but he's saying, listen, you have the cold knowledge of intellect, but you lack the message of a kindled or burning heart. The church can fall down on this. And it's really funny because there's actually oftentimes a divide in, in the American church, at least not the worldwide church, but there tends to be churches who focus more on the word. Um, and sometimes they can neglect the heart. There can be other churches who say they're focusing more on the heart, but there's often more of an emphasis on emotions and experience to the negligence of the mind. And what we're trying to do here is actually, it's a very challenging walk because we're trying to bring together um, the heart, the spirit, and the word in a word and spirit experience. That's the goal. That you would both understand, grasp, be able to read and grasp the scripture, but at a heart level, you would experience transformation and not just one-time transformation, but like me on Friday at my house, ongoing transformation. I'm so glad he's not leaving me where I am today. Somebody say yes, amen, amen, verily, verily. I got good news. If you're frustrated with where you are today, great. Take the next step in Jesus. On any given Sunday morning, we want you just to take the very next step in your Jesus journey. And it's a messy one, if it's real. It's a beautiful one. Okay, so the rebuke of Jesus, here he is. Uh, he's rebuking them because they have elevated the mind. They have neglected the human heart. Um, and he, so now let's even shift and look at this uh, fundamental failure. Like what is he addressing in these religious people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who I'd liken to the pastors of today, by the way. Thank you, somebody. Complimentary laugh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Dangerous place to stand up on a stage and preach God's word. Serious. So Jesus 
um, is he's, he's simultaneously um, rebuking them and saying, um, you guys uh, have missed these three things that testify that I'm God, but not only now have you missed that, you have missed the call to experience transformed hearts, and you've missed the call um, to then become my witnesses. Okay, so let's keep going. So uh, what Jesus is actually saying here, even in verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life, yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He, He is saying here, the Bible is not merely an instruction manual. Let me even go a little more firmly. He is saying the Bible is not an instruction manual. It is a relational manual. The Bible is actually from Genesis to Revelation. When you understand the original languages, you understand the context, you look at what's happening, the entire thing is this sovereign, holy God reaching out to broken, busted humans and inviting them into deep and significant, ongoing, vibrant relationship with Jesus. It's why I'm always talking about a one-year Bible and a five-year journal, because you don't need more Michael. You need more Jesus. You don't need lunch with Michael or to go hang out with one of the worship team members or no, 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 all that's good. And I want you in small groups and we're launching those so that you can, we can do life together. But what you need is King Jesus. And what you need is actually to experience more of him from Monday through Saturday. And what happens in this room as we come together is not a like, oh, I'm starving. I have this huge spiritual need. Rather, it becomes an overflow. So we come together, not just to get our needs met, but we actually come together to celebrate and we do silly things like wave palm branches and walk around in a circle because we're so excited about King Jesus because he's real. I mean, that's worth coming to church over. That's worth hanging out with people who actually believe like that. And I'm always looking around going, who is accessing the person and presence of Jesus in their private life when no one is looking, when nobody else is around, who is willing to do that hard work, heart work, hard heart work of actually cultivating significant dependence and relationship with him. And I'm telling you this story, even about me and my little Amelia, because I'm letting you in to my own broken Jesus journey. You can have your own. It's not easy because he's going to say things to you like, Michael, in that moment, you missed it with Amelia. And you have a choice. You either go, no, I didn't. And you go on your jolly way. And guess what? Go alone. Or Lord Jesus, sometimes the vulnerability with which we share here will make people uncomfortable, but I am more interested in growing and seeing a group of people vibrantly walking with him in a day-to-day way than building a big crowd of people. The crowd will come and the crowd will go. But the ones who walk with Jesus in significant, deep, and vibrant ways, who get that this is not simply an instruction manual. This is a relational story with a few few instructions in it. This This is God 
sovereign God, creator God, who actually wants to kindle in the hearts of his people this burning fire like John the Baptist had. This is God who wants to invite you into more deep and significant ongoing relationship with him. That is the fundamental rebuke of the failure of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is going, you have all the right answers. You say all the right things. You can quote all the scriptures. You have them all memorized. But the person of Jesus in the beginning was the Word, John 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's saying, you study the Word, and yet the Word incarnate stands before you, and you miss Him. And they stood there arrogantly and just looked at Him. Don't tell me we don't do that sometimes. If I really simplified this down, what I would basically say is I think Jesus is attempting to convey that people can either operate out of a big uh, head or out of a burning heart, but I don't think you can operate out of both. I don't think you can operate out of both. I'm convinced that God is looking for a group of people who recognize the witness, John the Baptist, Old and New Testament, God the Father of Jesus, recognize that he is King and Lord. Allow their hearts to be caught fire with this burning revelation and relational um, context and then walk with him and then become his witnesses on the earth. It's like read the witnesses, see the witnesses, surrender your life and then become his witnesses. What's funny is we're celebrating Palm Sunday today. We did the kids and the the triumphal um, entrance on Palm Sunday was a group of people and Jesus rode in on a donkey and we tend to think that's just a point of humility. It is a point of humility, but kings in those days who came in peace rode on a donkey. Kings who came to declare war rode on a horse. Jesus is going to return at the end on a... Jesus initially came in on a donkey inviting peace, inviting humility. And what the group of people who actually waved those palm branches and said, Hosanna, they wanted to see Jesus establish a kingdom that would overthrow Rome. But Jesus was actually going, no, 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 no. It's so much bigger than that. I'm going to establish an unseen kingdom that every human who ever lives and breathes can enter into so they can become free of the bondage of their own mind that they can actually experience an alive and burning heart, a heart kindled in things of the spirit. And then the mind is fully invigorated as it's fed from this burning heart. That's the idea of the kingdom of God. The enraptured heart, the emblazing heart, a heart on fire, you can call it whatever you want. But this is the idea, and I'm I'm even sharing this thing. Go back to my little story of Amelia. Can we as people experience the ongoing day-to-day burning heart of God in our lives? Yes. Are we going to do it perfectly every time? No. Did he already pay it all? Yes, that's the finished work of the cross. It's the good news of Easter. I want to end. And worship team, I think you're right around here. Y'all come on out. I saw somebody lurking over there. I love the way these people worship. Flip with me to Luke uh, 24. Luke 24. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So it's one book to the left.
So this is after Jesus rose from the dead. I'm jumping ahead to Easter Sunday. I like Easter Sunday too. In Luke 24, verse 30, it actually says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he began to give it to them. And verse 31 says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. Boom, gone. Verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning? Let's say that together. Were not our hearts burning? And what I love that you see here is you see hearts burning and minds engaged. In other words, Jesus is opening the scripture. And what that actually means is suddenly you have a group of people who've been studying the Old Testament and suddenly they're seeing from Genesis to Malachi how in the Old Testament God was actually um, planning that he would come to a cross and die and then he would rise and break the back of death and hell and he would defeat sin and open up the way of freedom for every single one of us. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Here's what I want to invite us to, church. Is that at some deeper level, you would take one little step, whatever it is, and you say, Lord Jesus, would you enrapture my heart? Would you engage my heart? Would you allow my heart to be set on fire. Before we go into a closing song, I'd love to invite our prayer team to come up. And here's what I'd love to ask us as a church to do. I'd love to ask some of you to take a step you're not comfortable with. Sometimes if you want to experience something you've never tasted or seen or experienced, you have to do something you've never done. You know what I'm saying? And some of you might be sitting out there going, man, I've kind of had my brain engaged. I don't know that I've experienced this idea of a burning heart. But as we close in this song, I would love to see a group of people take the next step. What's the next step? The next step for you might be to go see Cynthia at the small group table. The next step for you might be to come up here and grab one of these people and get prayer. The next step might be during this closing song, you simply walk down the aisle and just stand down here and worship Jesus. But listen to me, church. We can be a church of people that walks with Jesus powerfully, intimately, daily, and authentically. That's the call. That's where I want to be. Let's stand up together. If you're here and you've never given your heart to this King Jesus, I don't want to just have you stick up a hand and pray a prayer. Nothing wrong with that, but I'm going to be down here. I'd love to talk to you and lead you through it. 
But if you sense the beckoning of God in your heart, and you go, I want a burning heart. I want to take another step towards that burning heart, towards a spot where Jesus is speaking to me Monday through Saturday, even if it's messy, like he spoke to Pastor Michael, convicting me, changing me, forming me. I want to ask you to take, do something you've never done before. Maybe that's just open a hand up and say, Lord Jesus, would you give me a burning heart? Maybe that's getting out of your chair and just walking down front and worshiping. Come on, let's be a hungry church because this is what I know. The kingdom of God will not resist hearts that are on fire for him. Where does God show up? Places where people want him.